0: Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest.
1: And I'm Mark Wood.
0: In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes, as we all shelter in place.
1: This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today.
0: Today, we're talking with assistant professor of music, Giv Schreffler. An ethnomusicologist whose areas of research include music and dance of South Asia's Punjab region, historical work songs of American maritime culture, and aesthetics of Jamaican popular music.
1: Welcome, Gib. Thanks Thank for, you. for joining us here in cyberspace.
2: Thank you so much.
1: Um, so how are you adjusting to life in uh, this, this public health crisis?
2: Um, I feel lucky. I feel fortunate to, to have a, a job and <laughs> yeah. some job security and to be, um, you know, in a rather safe area. So my, my main, um, the things that are on my mind now are mostly others, I think, at this mm-hmm. time. And um, really been trying to think about the students, their um, mental state and their capacity for learning during this time. What what are you teaching? I'm teaching two courses. One is Intro to World Music, and the other one is called Music and Punjabi Culture. And um, they function um, okay on Zoom because um, although I prefer to have class discussions, um, we did a lot of the discussion work earlier in the semester. And we're writing out the course, the, writing out the semester a bit more with some lectures and lectures, you know, they work more or less on Zoom. So in this kind of situation where I feel like I'm writing out the semester, it's, I think it's been okay to, um, to use that format. But were we to continue with this remote learning situation in the fall, I think the, the courses would really have to be rethought.
0: Gib, tell us a little bit about your early years. Did you always gravitate toward music or how did you find your way to music?
2: Yeah. So my family background, um, I wouldn't consider to be particularly musical at all. I didn't have um, anyone in my family that I significantly was engaged in performing music. They, um, you know, I had my grandmother from Sicily played the organ, but that wasn't a you know, an enormous influence. Aside from that, there wasn't much of anything. So I remember my first um, interest in music probably exploded in around like 1983, 84 when, when hip-hop and rap and breakdancing started to come in. I grew up in um, Connecticut, which is kind of within the greater sphere of the New York area where that type of music hip-hop was developing. And by about 83, that expanded enough out of like the Bronx to, to the nearby tri-state area. So that was, our, that was our big thing. I remember that was the first music I was into was um, hearing like these, um, what they called electro music at the time, this like nucleus jam on it was like this big hit song and we played it on our boom boxes and we wanted to learn to break dance and that sort of thing. So that was like the first thing that got me enthusiastic about music until my um, middle school years where I was got into punk music and that was exciting to me because it was kind of a, kind of a rebellious thing and kind of like an outcast musical scene, and that's really what drew me into performing music for the first time because I wanted to have a punk band or various bands. I formed a band called the George Bushwhackers in the spirit of these. Like, these- Political protest things like Dead Kennedys was a, a hero yeah. band of mine. So I was like, well, George Bush was the president. George Bush the first. So with the George Bushwhackers. Um, so these were garage bands. And like we were drawn towards it too, for like the, the scene, you know, a find a place for yourself. If you feel like kind of an outsider, or an outcast, you, all the outcasts like come together and form their own scene in the punk rock scene. You could be different and uh, be with other people who felt different but also wanted to in the lyrics express these protests mm-hmm. but in order to do that i had to form a band and so that's the first mm-hmm. thing that drew me into actually wanting to perform music because as i said my my family didn't have any history of that there were no instruments around i wasn't like a it wasn't like um the parents make you do piano lessons or violin lessons i didn't have any of that mm-hmm. I didn't even um have like a guitar i had to you know do the proverbial like cardboard box with with rubber bands on it to try to imagine what a guitar was like until I got one. Mm -hmm. So that was the first thing I was able to do was to get some guitar lessons at my high school. And soon after I decided I didn't like guitar because it was, um, I'm sort of a big guy and it was a little small in my hands. I wanted something heavier. So I started to play the bass. And um, basically that's my, how I started getting into the performance of music and music theory in a formal way was first wanting to play punk rock music, but then after starting to learn to perform music, it opened my my uh, mind and my interest to like all kinds of other music. And and actually jazz was one of the first I got into after that because um, it was like a kind of a tricky music. I felt like it was sort of advanced, you had to, it was a bit nerdy, you know, You jazz really actually Calls on musicians to be brilliant really into music theory, so um I started pursuing the sort of the jazz thing at the same time yeah. so the George bushwhackers mm-hmm. uh,
1: did you write write songs for for your group did you uh Did
2: you have original music wrote a few songs, a lot of them were the cover songs it was still i mean in the beginning and middle school so we weren't um yeah. old enough to play out at gigs so it was a it was a garage band
1: mm-hmm. you know? so um then the move uh, into an academic career in music when when did you know that that was going to happen and how did you get interested in ethnomusicology
2: yeah that took a while i was uh, not interested in ethnomusicology stuff in the early years at all i um Somehow I developed this passion for performing music and it becomes a discipline. I, I think musicians will tell you, it's like you're just a way of being of your body to practice your music, you know, it becomes your daily routine. And, um, and once you start doing it, you, it's hard to think of like, how can I live without this routine? It's like anyone who does has an exercise regime or anything like that, or a meditation routine, you do that. So I'd gotten so into that, that by the time it came time for college, um, and I was the first, more or less, my stepfather went to a four-year college, but my, um, my siblings and my mother and my biological father hadn't gone to college. So in a way, basically no one in the family had gone to college. So, But the expectation was there that I go to college. What am I going to do in college? It was just like, I guess I'm going to do music. Very lucky that um, I, my parents didn't... Um, take an attitude like well what are you going to do with music and how can that get you a career I mean for us it was just like the idea of going to a college in itself was exciting and I think we, we were all a little maybe I don't know if it's naive or just um just open-minded we thought well if you go to college then that'll be a great thing and you'll get a degree and it will open up opportunities for you and when you go to college you just do what you like to do so I was very lucky that. Um, I was encouraged to go ahead and follow my passion, which was a music major. That developed into wanting to be a composition major. So I learned to play the bass um, in a formal professional way, but my major was actually composing music. And the issue then became um, what to do after college. As the senior year was wrapping up, And I'm thinking, gosh, now how do I deal with um, my situation, I've taken out lots of loans, came from a low-income background, so it was mostly loans that I went to college. Happily took those loans so I could go to the college. Now I'm getting ready to kind of be spit out the other side, not really with a plan of, like, how to turn these, this, these musical endeavors into a career. And, um, and the music you're writing in an academic situation tends to be um, fine art music. And it's moreover, it's like a music that's um, like avant-garde. It's on the cutting edge, but that also means it's not accessible to a large audience of people. It's not music to be marketed, you know, and you're, you're adhering to your art rather than thinking about marketing. But of course, that mm-hmm. becomes the thing on graduation. Now, how, what do I do as a composer? And I guess I was in my final year of college is when I really started um, exploring all these other kinds of musical traditions that I was interested in beyond the kind of what you might call the Western concert music. And trying to envision um, how to be active in music that was perhaps more broadly accessible. Didn't really work out still, it didn't work out. Still, once I graduated, I thought, hey, I've got to see what I can do with these skills. Should I be a professional musician? Should I um, do some other work, but still practice music as my, my discipline and my way of life on the side? And I did so many th- things. I mean, it was real. I love to talk to students about this um, because it's like, um, you really don't even know, I think most people, even when they graduate from college, where they're going to end up. So I immediately, since due to my family background, as a working class background, we have the attitudes like, you just get a job immediately. There wasn't a tradition like in my family of like you we we didn't have any professionals in my family. Nobody aspired to be like doctor, lawyer, engineer, those sorts of things. We all everyone in my family was just worked for somebody else. And you getting a job was the immediate thing. So I remember graduating from college. I didn't attend my commencement for some reason. I was just felt alienated or something and I didn't even do that. I was I remember those those days I was just like playing bagpipes in the woods or something like just still pursuing this passion and denial of what I was going to do. But I um, just immediately <laughs> took, you know, minimum wage jobs, labor jobs, one after another, you know, factory kind of construction like thing, restaurant, dishwasher, temp jobs, all those sorts of things um, until a few years went by and the prob- few about two years went by and Oh, and I did, I did try for the musician path by going on a, on a cruise ship, playing on a cruise ship, and that was my turning point when I realized ah. that um, <laughs> after playing on the cruise ship that I didn't want to be a professional musician, that I didn't want to go through the grind
3: of yeah.
2: playing gig to gig type of situation. I wanted a uh, nine to five yeah. or something more steady. You know, I remember I was on the ship at sea and like just <laughs> at that point, wanting to get back to the land and just having a sort of normal routine. And I decided then that music was going to be part of my life, but being a professional mm-hmm. musician was not going to be it, but still in debt. What do I do? I have to say it was, um, it was hard to decide what to do because I was, really, I was drawn to what felt like the simple life of doing kind of humble labor. Um, again, that was kind of the cultural environment I was raised in. Just go to work, do your job, get a very modest pay. Um, you'll be fine. But I had taken out so many student loans. <laughs> I couldn't, I just couldn't pay back the loans. So I had to find out a way to escape that. Those loans shape your life, right? <laughs> I had to escape the student loans and, and the, the path to escape from the student loans, I, I hate to, to say this, was to go to graduate <laughs> school. <laughs> and they would defer, you know, the, the loan payment and still not, na- <laughs> still completely naive, still thinking, okay, now if I go to graduate school, I'll come out the other side of the degree and that'll just like entitle me to work. And then, so I'll be fine. I'll be able to pay off student loans easily once I come out the other side of of graduate school. So that was, this is a long way of saying that's when I turned to ethnomusicology because I had to think. Um, and in those intervening years, i had explored so many different types of music around the world. I had gotten into, um, by chance, Indian film music. And in order to understand Indian film music, I was learning the Hindi language of the Indian films, just kind of teaching it to myself and um, broadening my music horizons but now I'm thinking, how can I translate all these very eclectic skills that I have from, I had gone to a liberal arts college and musical skills. And now I had some linguistic skills and I had some, so I think some life experience of dealing with like difficult situations. How can I, and I love to study things still. How can I turn that into something? And I'm not sure how I became aware of ethnomusicology. But after musicology grad school in the 1990s seemed like a pretty cool way to to escape the last two, three years of <laughs> debt and minimum wage <laughs> for a time, with the hopes that it would, again, come out the other side with something, yeah. You're a
0: very pragmatic and hopeful musician.
2: Mm.
0: <laughs> Give. let's uh, get into a little bit of your areas of research. Mm. Um, you focus a lot. Um, of your um, academic work into um, work songs how did you find your way into this area of research
2: so work songs comes at another I had several periods during my academic career where I was um, I had to retreat back into my kind of minimum wage labor sector and um, during one of those was um, the financial downturn of around 2008. And where I had to essentially leave my grad school studies for two, three years again. And I was back into um, that attitude again. Now I'm, I, had, well, I had to leave grad school because um, the, for one reason or another, sort of my funding dried up for going to school. And it was so sudden that there was no planning of of what job I could go into in the meantime while out of grad school. So again, it was just like just get any kind of work you can immediately. And uh, I had to move back home with my parents, my sister, her husband, my nephew. We were and my brother. We were all affected by the economic downturn, and we all crammed into my parents' small house. And you know whether sleeping on air mattresses or whatever it was, we all had our work routines, had to stagger. One person wakes up at 5.00 AM. One person works about 5.30, you know, to get in the shower and do that sort of thing. So I'm doing these um, back in this work environment, labor environment, which I had experienced right after undergrad too. And I had remembered right after undergrad, the way I kind of got through those jobs was to, to get through the eight hour day by, learning music in my head while I was working. And so I went back to that kind of skill and I started drawing on these, um, these shanty songs, these mostly maritime work songs, which I had some exposure to from growing up in Connecticut because we have um, Connecticut has this um, museum living history museum called the mystic seaport, which is the, Premier maritime museum, I think, in the world, we can say, they have a program where they, um, the, mm, the the kind of, they're not reenactors, but the the facilitators of historical learning sing these songs as part of the educational program. So, growing up in that state, we were actually exposed from elementary school years to this genre. So, I had some background in that, and then I, uh, in grad school, I met a friend. Uh, his name is Revel Carr he's a colleague and scholar um, in ethnomusicology as well and his um his father was the president of that museum, so he grew up with that thing so um this was something in my past that I brought back at this particular time and used it to keep me going and I set out on this this project i don't know why I just it was just like a pet project of um, look here's another you know, every few years I have different musical interest comes up. So at that time, this musical interest came up, the shanty songs. And I said, I really want to learn them well this time. Here's a project to learn them well. I'm going to try to learn every known shanty song, every item of repertoire. I've got a lot of time on my hands. Again, I'm back in, working in the factories doing this, like, repetitive, you know, work or, um, you know, a construction job or um, those sorts of things. Well, that's what those songs were made for, right? And some, uh, in many ways, yes. Um, I was never able to really affect it in the way um, that they were, the songs were done historically because we don't have that culture of singing at work anymore <laughs> <Right>. and how <laughs> to, to bring in others into that. Right. So yeah. it became more of my own personal project to do it in my head and like learn all the songs. And as I, took in like this enormous bite of all the repertoire of those those songs I just started to see all these connections between um other like diverse musics of the world that i explored had explored in the past, including my my real um passion for pleasure music listening which was Jamaican music, so music of the the afro caribbean era uh area of the world and just say just how oh, this is like i can hear through the shanty songs, because uh, I have some kind of musical training, kind of hear past the, the, like the visual image, images or the narrative of these songs that you see in media as to what I'm supposed to think they're about. He, listen to them on, according to their musical form and lyrics and structure and sensibility and kind of hear through that and, and see this connection to these uh, songs of the African diaspora in the Americas. And that's when that project started going, when I started to. So my project about these shanty work songs is is largely about revealing, trying to revise the history of these songs to reveal how um, this genre of song, sailors singing a particular, very particular genre of work songs on ships, how that genre emerged out of what I argue to be pre-existing uh, genres of work song that come from African American culture, and that goes back to even further to um, a sensibility from in certain West African cultural groups of um, of embedding work in song as a matter of course, not as an add-on, not as an incidental, not as um, not as like not to not to generalize and say well there are people all around the world who happen to sing when they work because it alleviates the pressure not just that but a very specific um developed interaction between uh a method like when whenever people work in groups by default they sing these songs because it's just what's done Mm -hmm.
1: so now somewhere along the line um you developed an alter ego um Shantyman named Ranzo. Um, yeah. Can you tell us a little, a little bit about that and about Ranzo's performances?
2: Sure. Um, so that that came out of, uh, first out of my project to learn all the shanties, and YouTube was beginning in those years. And those were like the nostalgic early days, I feel, of YouTube. It felt like it was, you know, YouTube starts to really emerge in 2006, and, and um, it felt like, really like a community then and it really like any person, it was you, you did your thing. And it wasn't about like advertising as much as it is now and, and promotion and those sorts of things. And I felt like, um, how am I gonna um, learn these songs to some sort of standard? Well, I could keep myself honest by recording myself as I learn and then I can go back and create an archive of what I've learned of the songs. So I'm posting the songs in YouTube. So that that um, that one particular musical al- alter ego, and I've had many of them. <laughs> that was one particular one that developed out of that YouTube project, which goal was to record as many songs uh, from this repertoire as possible. It ended up being, I think, over five hundred different songs, and um, and re- not purport to be uh, doing a giving a performance for like to entertain people, but really it was largely a personal growth project but secondarily posted for others to see because um, a lot of this repertoire is only in text form in books. So it hasn't been, you know, performed in a recording. So you actually hear what the the text sounds like. So I'm sitting there putting my research skills to uh, applying my research skills while I'm in a situation where I'm not an active academic doing research, but bringing that to this project to, um, you know, bring these songs to people who might want to, you know, figure out what this, who might, for example, own the books where the songs are listed, but not have an idea what they sound like. And then from there, I go on to um, be somewhat active in different like performing communities that um, that cater to this genre.
0: Give you as part of um, one of your classes, um, American Maritime Musical Worlds uh, mm. class, you, um, Take your students out to sea um can you tell us a, a little bit about this voyage and what do you hope for your students to learn from this
2: experience yeah. um so my learning of these songs um, or learning of any music in my field of ethnomusicology um, is largely a tool of research so there's the activity of performing music which people do as an art you know in a personal expression and then there's um performing or learning to play perform whatever music as a potential auxiliary tool for research and that's something that ethnomusicologists do and part of doing that is to experientially learn about your subject matter right so i um and i could just go back for a second when i was learning all these um, these shanty songs. I was always doing it while my body was physically engaged in something. So either I was at my job, my body was moving a certain way, or it might have been just on a walking somewhere. You know, walking to a bus stop, or waiting for a bus, or at the gym working out, or something. I always had body movement with that because my understanding of what these songs were is it's, it's sound that is always connected with body movement. And it's really hard to envision these songs without body movement, and it's almost like a, it, once you know this, this, this uh, music, and I think you understand it, you uh, it hurts to um, experience it completely outside of its context. You don't get satisfaction of it outside of its context. I like think every music has its context. that's what music, uh, at the music are interested and music in its context, because music gets its meaning from its context. So when you rip music out of its the context that suits that particular type of music, you lose the meaning, and then you maybe lose a sense of like, why are you even doing it at all? So the tricky thing about these songs is that since they're always in this movement context, and ideally in this particular work context, um, when you do it outside of that, you feel like you're A, not really understanding what it's all about, and um, B, maybe even aesthetically, you, d- you don't get sort of satisfaction out of it. So I'm trying to, of course, help the students get some experience of the feeling of learning these songs in the context. And it's so rare that you can nowadays to actually experience those songs and even a close facsimile of the context in which they're performed because the, the sailing ships today do not even when people operate the old style sailing ships, they don't do the work to any kind of singing. It's a lost um, tradition. And I think the people of today who are the demographic that's involved in those ships, on one hand, they they just don't know how to do it because it's it's lost. But in another sense, they're just not inclined. They're not culturally inclined because I think this embedding song and music was a particular cultural inclination. So we wanted to... um, get as close as we could to recreating that experience, and the only way to do that was really kind of to merge the, the expertise of the people who sail the ships with, with someone like myself who also um, knows the songs because there are the communities of people who sing these songs generally sing them kind of like as a, a sing around where they're just you know kind of sitting there and they're not coordinating it with the work either. And I to be honest, I don't get a lot out of those experiences again, because I feel like it's like a aesthetic violence to the experience to, it, this sounds really harsh because I, I mean, who would, who would, um, like who would criticize people who just like to get together and sing? I mean, honestly, I don't have criticism of those people. It's a very personal thing that I'm saying here is that I was not getting the aesthetic satisfaction out of going to a group of people and singing these songs. They say the sailors on the ships uh, that sang these songs, never sang these songs outside of a working context. Mm -hmm. They didn't, you didn't abstract the song from the context ever. So, to get any kind of understanding, you have to try to do it. So that project, Patty, you were talking about was to go to sea and actually, um, there's a lot of historical knowledge that's lost and um, because the people who were singing these songs historically took for granted what they were um, doing. So they didn't, feel they needed to write down and explain what they were doing. So we, we can actually develop hypotheses of, of things that were happening that weren't actually noted by um, engaging in the work too. So we did that with the students, like, like how many polls does it actually take? How many verses does it take to accomplish this job? Nobody notes that in the literature. They just, you know, they say we did it, but we don't actually know how fast they did it how hard it, uh, you know, for the speed of the work, how long they had to do it for, what the actual feeling was.
1: Um, I understand that uh, Gib, you've given us some recordings of, of uh, some of your performances. We're we'll, we're going to include some of that at the end of the of the podcast for for those of our listeners who stick around with us. Um, can you tell us a little bit about one or one or two of the? the, of your favorites, uh, especially the, maybe one or one that you've included, um, for us to play later.
2: Sure. Um, one of them, um, which you might play is a song called Sally Brown. It interests me because it's, um, and according to my research, it's the, f- more or less the first song in this genre. The genre sort of developed, so what I mean to say is like, um, if we call rock and roll a genre, there's sort of precursors to rock and roll that sound a certain way and you realize they're, they're related, but then there's like rock and roll, the standard rock and roll. So this is, if we talk about like the standard shanty genre, one of the very earliest examples was this song, Sally Brown, and it appears in an account on a ship, I th- believe if I remember correctly, in 1837. So it's a real good marker for when this genre really did start to appear, and especially because in this account, you, there's a observer of the singers of these sailors who was a captain who happened to be a, um, a passenger on this voyage, and he's awoken to hearing the sailors sing this song. He'd been a captain for decades, and he's and he's saying, "What is this new kind of song? Like there had been some kind of vocalization singing in the past, mm-hmm. but this was the new thing." Huh. And so it's really marking when the new genre comes in. It's that particular song mm-hmm. and they're doing the work on a, what was a new invention of the time. So technology, the invention of new technology on ships plays a lot into my research. This was an invention called a, a, a lever windlass. It's used for hauling up anchors and other heavy jobs, but it was invented in the 1830s it slowly becomes adapted onto the ships. And it, entails a particular method of working, you're almost like you're, you're pumping down on um, what used to be a, the way they pumped old fire engines or where you mm-hmm. pump water out of something, kind of a, or it looks like a, a railroad hand cart, those ways people could move along a railroad by a seesaw action of pumping up and down. This was an absolutely new device, absolutely new in the late 1830s on sailing ships and highly conducive to singing songs with it. As opposed to an earlier device, which, which you had to stop and start and readjust and always interrupt what you were doing and wasn't conducive to singing songs. So we have this, this moment in the 1830s where this song Sally Brown is being heard. And it's also the moment where this Sally Brown is a representative of a new genre of song is linked with a new piece of technology that would then continue on for the next several decades. And I believe allow this genre of song to flourish. So I'm, I'm singing that in this example in on the ship the Charles W Morgan, which is a whaling ship. It's a historical landmark at Mystic Seaport, and it's I believe I would say it's the only vessel in the world. With some small caveat, there may be one other, but basically the only vessel on this world that vessel in the world that still has that particular device on which that song was sung. So. Mm-hmm there are people in the, that are recreating the action of that, uh, working on that device while I'm singing the song. So I was able to oh, wow. bring that research together, sing that particular song on the last remaining ship that actually has that device. That's cool.
0: Give the shift to um, another area of, sure. uh, of your research, um, which is South Asia's Punjab region. Mm-hmm. What drew you to Punjabi music, dance and culture?
2: I. When I went to grad school, I knew I wanted to do something about India because I had this bizarre five-year plan that was like part of those, those fantasies after graduation that I wanted to be a musician in the Indian film industry. And that was what got me into learn, learning about Indian culture, learning Indian languages. So I knew I wanted to do something in India, entered grad school, and then you're feeling around for a topic. I happened to begin grad school in the very year where they started um, rather, what at the time was pretty rare, which was to be able to learn Punjabi language and to take courses studying about the, the Punjab area of the world. So I was lucky to kind of get in on the ground floor of the beginning of one of these rare programs. This was at University of California, Santa Barbara. They had endowed a chair in studies related to the Punjab region. So I was able to jump right into Punjabi language classes I was able to immediately after my um, first year of grad school, go to the Punjab area of India and immerse myself. And then I was able to take more Punjabi language classes and then go to India again. So it became, um, my project started to open up because I thought, well, hey, now I can, uh, this is an area as I discovered that hadn't um, been addressed by scholars very much. The local Punjabi scholars had addressed Punjabi music, but they almost um, entirely in the form of the texts of the songs. You hear a song and what are the words and like then kind of like, what's that about? But in terms of studying other nonverbal aspects to Punjabi music, there had been very little research on that and there hadn't been research in uh, English. So this was, you know, as a grad student, you're looking for an area to go into. And my first time I went to Punjab, India, I noticed this drum called Dhol, this large barrel drum. Seeing it everywhere, seeing um, it emerge as what I think is now this um, icon of Punjabi culture. It's a uh, an emblem that can represent the Punjabi identity globally. That was starting to emerge at that time, and I thought, hey, this is maybe like a key, like a key symbol, you know, that I can interpret in my, you know, academic. Language, you know, as like the, the keystone for all kinds of activity related to Punjabi musical culture, but even more specifically, Punjabi musical culture that wasn't, um, that like local musicians or scholars for one reason or another didn't think was worthy of being discussed because the drumming is not um, classified in the local conception as music. It is a drum. It's classified as drumming. But there's a different, ontologically, there's a different uh, distinction between music per se, quote unquote, and drumming. And the other twist to this was that, is that the drummers um, are all hereditary professional musicians. They're born into their profession and they're born into it from the position of the absolutely most marginalized ethnic communities in the Punjabi society. So... um, there's very little dialogue between the people who are creating those sounds, doing the drumming from those very marginalized ethnic communities and the people who might, um, you know, deign to <laughs> discuss that in scholarly work, which come from a different social class. And I had the the kind of dubious advantage of being a an ex- more kind of extreme outsider who didn't fit into the kind of web of class and, and caste in society there. So didn't have the inhibitions to, let's say, rub elbows with these folks that, um, that were for hundreds of years and still, you know, put in a marginalized position, we could have a bit more of a dialogue than others had. And when I saw that was the opportunity, when I started talking to those people and saw that they were interested in having their stories told, by someone who was interested to do it, which was myself. Then I was able to just run wild and um, ended up going back to India several times, eventually on a fulbright haze grant, staying there for a full year one time, and just traveling every single um, area of that region and meeting these musicians to try to gather their stories and also paint a picture of the, also the diversity of that particular tradition.
1: So, um, since this is a podcast, I have to ask, did you learn to play any of those instruments yourself? And do you have any of them around that you could sort of let us know how
2: they sound? Yeah, I'll give you the sound of one instrument, which um, I don't consider myself uh, as a performer on, but uh, I'll say something about it that I think could be of interest to the audience. But before that, I did learn to play that large drum dol. And uh, it's, you know, an interesting journey because, as I said, the players of that are hereditary professionals. You're born into it. Mm-hmm. So the question is, what, like, what business do I have playing it, <laughs> right? Right. And where do I fit? Am I anybody who plays that? And, in fact, the, the a book manuscript which I've completed, um, seeking a publisher right now, is about um, the story of recent years of Punjabi people who don't belong to those specific hereditary communities that are taking up this instrument, and what kind of is- issues that is raising for the, the the future of those who have been born into it. Specifically, the fact that they're born into it with this one privilege in life; they're disadvantaged in every other way, but their one privilege is to have the monopoly on playing that instrument nobody else can play because only those who were born into, right? So with all the other adversity they face in life, they have this one thing. So now if others want to play that. And like, it calls forth like the topic of, you know, cultural appropriation, what's going to happen to them. And it really brings home um, that discussion of cultural appropriation where um, sometimes when we have that discussion, it's like, yeah, you know, I can see how somebody, um, could feel slighted that someone's doing your tradition, but um, isn't that the way culture is and music is? It, it kind of flows and people borrow, and that's and that works. Okay, so that works in a lot of situations. In this particular unique situation, it's like <laughs> it's like literally stealing the one job from these people that they had. Yeah. So that so I have to really reflect on my role in doing that. So, um, but again, the performance in for an ethnomusicologist is part of the research tool. And, you know, I was absolutely welcome to learn it with as part of my process of, of understanding um, with also the understanding that I'm not going to go on to become a professional performer. <laughs> right. The instrument that I did bring for you today is a totally different instrument. It's called tumbi, tumbi, t-u-m-b-i. It's a small lute. Lute is a the ethnomusicologist term for any kind of in, string instrument, which the where the string runs parallel to the body of the instrument, and there's a, a fingerboard on it, and um, a specific type of lute is a banjo, and I use the word banjo in this broad sense. That means a lute where the body of the instrument is covered with skin, and that would give a particular sound. Like a guitar doesn't isn't covered with skin; it's covered with wood on top, whereas a banjo like the american banjo has a skin on top so it has a particular twangy sound so this instrument has a skin on top and this is the twangy sound of it and this instrument was um used by um, the the in the, used in the genre of punjabi music which before recordings were invented was as close as you came to a Purely entertainment genre of music. Now, the reason why I emphasize that is because I'm thinking of like um, ethnomusicologists want to look at the total society's total involvement of music and why you do certain things. And music is not just an entertainment genre, you use it in devotion and in rituals and all sorts of other things. Um, the pure entertainment genre was singing of ballad like songs, narrative songs with a simple accompaniment. Those musicians use this type of instrument to accompany their singing. The interesting, and I I wanna give you an example now of like what that could sound like with singing. I'm gonna make an attempt. I'm not a, I don't claim to be a professional performer of this, but here's the the instrument. Here's a, a Punjabi lyric. Oh, Jugani Jado, Shair,
3: Nujaveh. Oh, Jugni, Jado, Shair, Nujaveh. Oh, Jugani Jado, Shair, Nujaveh. Nakvich, Koke, Nyumat, Ghamay. Sumah, Puch, Amar, Chattani, Nala, Samosay, Kaay. Oh, Mary, our Jugni. Mary, Jugani Jugni, Kaundi, Sabda, Dil,
2: very strident vocal tone yeah and narrow melodic range just a few Mm -hmm. sort of notes that go up and down it's very declamatory uh tone kind of Mm -hmm. uh lack of meter in the singing but the the instrument keeps your your meter the interesting Mm -hmm. thing i wanted to say about this instrument which is why i brought it today is that um that type of music was but a few decades into the recording industry was old fashioned and didn't suit the recorded music genre. So of course people are finding ways to adapt their prior musical traditions to a recorded music format. Something you could buy, a, a, you know, a three minute song type format or something with uh, some timbre, some, some tones that were more, uh, I would say, genteel, more suited to like the, the record buying public. And there was one musician who, who uh, gained a lot of notoriety in the 1950s who, um, who played this instrument a lot with his singing. He played in a so kind of a softer vocal tone. He played he sang songs that were more concise, could be express an idea, maybe a love song or something, and within a, a three minute span, this individual's name was Lal Yumla Jat. And he adapted this instrument from what was a much bigger form to the form that I have here. And as he did that, this instrument became uh, just ubiquitous and the, um, the, the entertainment music on recordings. Now, um, as Punjabi music starts to be known all over the world more now, this very instrument is the, what I'll call the indexical sound of Punjabi music. I say index, and being a little um, fancy here. Index is like a, a sign that points to something. So this is an index that points to, it references something, what does it reference? Punjabi culture in a nutshell. You hear this sound and it tells you this is something of Punjabi culture. So all these, when when Punjabi music is um, dispersed in like the kind of global musical marketplace, musicians are being eclectic and mixing different sounds from different music traditions, a lot of dance music traditions from the West, for example, but they'll add this particular instrument because in a nutshell, hearing this twangy banjo sound of this instrument, the tumbi, immediately, immediately and, you know, without question tells you that's a Punjabi thing that you're referencing. So be on the lookout or on the, the ear out, the listen out for this, the sound of this particular instrument. If you're hearing this in any kind of like globally circulated popular music, um, you can be sure that that's a Punjabi origin.
0: When you started playing, it, I could identify it already. It's it's mm-hmm. it's yeah. it was so, really remarkable.
2: Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Ready? So, um, do you remember where you might have heard it before?
0: Yes, I have um, Indian friends. Uh-huh. So when I would visit their home, they were watching obviously Indian mm-hmm. uh, TV shows. Mm-hmm. So that there's oh there was always. Uh, delicious food in the kitchen and and that music in the background so that i when you started playing i was like oh it it took me back there
2: yeah (laughs) that's the um the milestone was um around uh, 2002 2003 a punjabi producer based in england who was mixing kind of western dance beats with this iconic punjabi sound his his mix was taken up by the hip-hop artist jay-z who did a remix of the song called Mundianton <laughs> Pachakeri, was the original Punjabi song. And that's Jay-Z right. turned into Beware of the Boys, and it was a hit song that's around right. 2003 internationally.
0: That's right. I I mean, just started saying, I was like, that's right, that Jay-Z yeah. song.
2: And then Punjabis everywhere could feel like, You know, in America, for instance, they could see somebody who wasn't Punjabi kind of cruising down the street, bumping their speaker in their car to this new Jay Z (laughs) track and hear that iconic Punjabi sound and feel like, ah, like we're seeing being seen now.
1: So, on that note, literally, we're going to wrap this up. Mm -hmm. Um, We've been talking with Gib Treffler, um, um, ethnomusicologist and assistant professor of music. Thanks, Gib. This was fun. For me, too.
2: Thanks very much.
0: And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast. Stay with us to listen to some work songs from Yves Schreffler. Stay safe, and until next
3: time. go, hey, Sally Brown, I miss you dearly. Spend my money, money on, on Sally Brown. Brown. Oh, seven long years I courted Sally. Wait, wait, hey. wait oh, and oh. what seven long years she would not marry. Spend my money on Sally wait, oh, Brown. Oh, Sally Brown, I took the notion. who Across the ocean Spend my money, money on, on Sally Brown. I wrote to her With fool's cap paper <laughs> Ooh, hey, and hey, hey, go But Sally Brown She never wrote me Spend my money on Sally Brown. Oh, Sally lives in old Jamaica Way, Way Rollin' to Growin' tobacco and selling rum Spend my money on, on Sally Brown. Brown Now, Sally Brown I long to hear ya Way, Way Rollin' the But Sally Brown I can't get near ya Spend my
1: money, on Spend my money season.
3: Season. Yeah.